Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Brown here. Glad you could join us today. So happy Yom Kippur, everybody. And I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, so let's get into it. Let's start off with first an obituary. From the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, September 19, 2023. Rob, Brian Robert Levy, October 16, 1953 to September 12, 2023. Author a note. Robert, excuse me, Brian Robert Levy, age 69, died on September 12, 2023 at his home in Pasadena, California after a courageous battle with cancer. Brian was born on October 16, 1953 in Oakland, California, the second son of Alan Wall Levy and Jean May Levy. A few years later, Brian and his now four brothers would move to Alamo, California, which would become his childhood home until his life's adventures would begin. He graduated from Monta Vista High School in Danville, California in 1971, where he was an excellent student and an outstanding athlete in baseball, basketball, and football. Before college, Brian traveled the world, spending a great deal of time in Greece, other parts of Europe, and the Philippines. He purchased an around-the-world airline ticket and took his time to see as much as he could. That would set the stage for a life of full, full of travel. He was a constant globetrotter. After his travels, Brian attended and graduated from Humboldt State with a business administration degree. He used his education, morals, and work ethic to successfully build a strong career with Wells Fargo as a vice president in private banking. He loved to read, travel, and spend years studying his family tree. He had incredible knowledge of all his relatives going back several hundred years. Brian was a voracious reader. He saw that life is like a good book. It's not how long it is, but how good it is that really matters. He loved his life, his family, and his friends. He also enjoyed running and ran the Bay to Breakers in San Francisco every year. Brian was witty and wise and loved to share a glass of wine with his family and friends. Well, he wouldn't actually share a glass. He had a thing about that, but he was always ready to have a good time with his loved ones. Brian led a very private life, and as in life, his desire would be that his passing would be private as well. Yogi Berra once said, Always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. Well, that wasn't Brian, and his wishes were to go quietly in the night, and that wish was honored. Brian's final resting place is Oakwood Memorial Park in Santa Cruz, California. Brian is survived by his 30-plus year life partner, Irene Nakamura, brothers Stephen, Kevin, Jason, and Martin, sister-in-laws Mary Lou, Annie, and Vida, nephews, niece, and nieces Joshua, Stephanie, Ashley, Brett, Nick, and many other family and friends. From all of us, Brian, we love you, and may you rest in eternal peace. That was Brian Robert Levy. October 16, 1953 to September 12, 2023, author unknown. And from the same obituary section, Tuesday, November, uh, Tuesday September 19, 2023, here's this one. Henriette Henny Moskowitz, author unknown. Henriette Henny Moskowitz, born September 8, 1921, Chemnitz, Germany, died September 10, 2023, Sierra Madre, California. Daughter of the late Bernard and Regina Moskowitz and sister of the late David Moskowitz is survived by her loving sister-in-law Betty Moskowitz 
nieces Lara, Karen, and Julie Moskowitz, nephew Michael Moskowitz, as well as great nephews David and Daniel Hertzberg, Gabriel Strick, great niece Nia Brown, and cousins Ruth and Richard Fallenbaum, Nina Ichikawa. After fleeing the Nazis in 1937, Henny settled with her family in the Boyle Heights area of Los Angeles. A graduate of UCLA, Henny became a greatly loved elementary school teacher working with English as a second language student. After her retirement, Henny's life was filled with commitment to her synagogue, her involvement with nature friends, art classes, and her unending devotion to the Democratic Party and causes for social justice. That was Henriette Henny Moskowitz, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, September 19, 2023. All right, we have one Israel story here, but it actually takes place in the United States. From the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, September 21st, 2023, Biden meets Netanyahu, but not at White House. After a long snub, the president sits with the Israeli leader in New York to discuss some of the hard issues by Tracy Wilkinson. New York. Ending a prolonged snub, President Biden held a very candid meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday, welcoming possible rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia and cautioning him to preserve democracy at home. The meeting pointedly did not take place at the White House, as Netanyahu would have preferred, but in a New York hotel on the margins of the annual United Nations General Assembly, which both leaders were attending this week. Today, we're going to discuss some of the hard issues Biden said ahead of the session seated with the Israeli Prime Minister in front of an array of flags from both countries. The topics to be covered, he said, were upholding democratic values that lie in the heart of our partnership, including the checks and balances in our systems and preserving the path to a negotiated two-state solution and ensuring that Iran never, never acquires a nuclear weapon. The president was alluding to Netanyahu's efforts to overhaul the Israeli judiciary in ways that many in that country say would undermine democracy and gut one of the few balances of political power there. The move has triggered massive demonstrations uh, for months. Biden urged Netanyahu and his coalition government to seek consensus instead of pushing ahead with such unpopular measures, but to little avail. Biden also referred to the importance of an independent Palestinian state, the two-state solution, hopes for which have all but vanished with the arrival of Israel's most right-wing nationalistic government to date. A senior Biden administration official who briefed reporters after the meeting on condition of anonymity in keeping with White House protocols described the session as very constructive, very candid, and ultimately, we hope, productive. Netanyahu emphasized ongoing talks to open diplomatic ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia, an extension of the Abraham Accords brokered during the Trump administration, in which a handful of Arab and Muslim countries formally recognized Israel. Before then, Egypt and Jordan were the only countries in the Middle East that did. I think that under your leadership, Mr. President, we can forge a historic peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia, Netanyahu said, and I think such a peace would go a long way for us to advance the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict, achieve reconciliation between the Islamic world and the Jewish state, and advance a genuine peace between the Israel and the Palestinians. Biden added, If you and I, ten years ago, were talking about normalization with Saudi Arabia, I think we'd look at each other like 
who's been drinking what? But privately, U.S. officials remain cautious about a normalization deal, saying it has a long way to go. Saudi Arabia has formal, formidable lists of uh, a formidable list of asks, including assistance with a civilian nuclear energy program and a security pact that will include a NATO-style commitment that the U.S. will go to Saudi Arabia's defense in case of attack. The Saudis also insist that improvements be, be made in the plight of the Palestinians, several million of whom live under Israeli military occupation. The senior official said it was understood by Netanyahu that an agreement on the Palestinians would have to be part of any Saudi rapprochement deal, but declined to go into details. Nobody has ever said that this, this is right around the corner, the official said of normalization. We've worked on this for some time. We have been making some progress, but there's still some way to travel on this before we get there. Breaking with tradition, Biden did not invite Netanyahu to the White House immediately after his inauguration in January 2021. At the time, Netanyahu had been out of power for several months, returning last December. Still, there has been no invitation. Administration officials said the intent was to show disapproval for some of the moves Netanyahu's government, Netanyahu government was making. In addition to the judicial changes, some members of his cabinet have a history of espousing anti-Arab racist rhetoric and inciting violence. This has coincided with an outbreak of gang violence by Jewish settlers in the West Bank, attacking Palestinians and their homes, in addition to shootings and bombings by Palestinian militants targeting Israelis. U.S. officials have repeatedly voiced alarm at the surge in violence, but have done little to stop it. The last year has been one of the deadliest in a decade, mostly for Palestinians. Protesters, many from Israel and waving Israeli flags, have dogged Netanyahu at his appearances in New York, including outside of the Biden meeting. They are protesting the attempt to take away power from the Israeli Supreme Court, which some critics see as Netanyahu's way to escape his own pro uh, prosecution on corruption charges. With Biden, Netanyahu seemed to downplay the concerns many people have over the judicial overhaul and other steps critics see as anti-democratic, including inserting Orthodox Judaism increasingly into public life. But he insisted one thing will never change, Israel's commitment to democracy. On Iran, both governments, along with Saudi Arabia, have broad agreement on the need to contain the country's nuclear power. It was largely frozen under the 2015 International Iran Nuclear Agreement signed by then-President Obama and five other countries. But then-President Trump pulled out of the deal in 2018, and Iran has steadily increased its enrichment of uranium, a key step in building nuclear bombs. They share, that shared goal of ours to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon can be best achieved by a credible military threat crippling sanctions, and supporting the brave men and women of Iran who despise that regime and who are our real partners for a better future, Netanyahu said. Biden and Netanyahu noted that they have known each other for 40 years, dating to when they were just starting their political diplomatic careers. Despite his decision to shut out Netanyahu for months, Biden made a point of saying that his loyalty to Israel was unbending. Even when we have some differences, my commitment to Israel, you know, is ironclad, Biden said. I think without Israel, there is not a Jew in the world who is secure. 
Israel is essential. That was Biden meets Netanyahu, but not at White House by Tracy Wilkinson from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, September 21st, 2023. All right, here is another one international from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, September 22nd, 2023. Zelensky visits D.C. to seek more war aid. In capital meetings, Ukrainian president focuses on limiting the loss of support among Republicans for funds by Aaron B. Logan. Washington. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky came to Washington on Thursday with a problem to solve. A year and a half after Russia invaded Ukraine, once bipartisan support for his military funding for his embattled nation has evaporated. 71% of Republicans, along with 55% of independents, but just 38% of Democrats, said in a CNN poll in July that Congress should not authorize additional funding for the war. Some GOP members have followed their constituents' lead. In August, 70 House Republicans early, uh, nearly, uh, nearly a third of their caucus, voted for an amendment that would have, would have cut off all aid to the Ukraine. Representative Doug Lambalfa of Richvale was the lone California Republican to vote for the measure, which failed after Democrats voted with the majority of the House GOP to kill it. Zelensky, fresh from a visit to the U.N. General Assembly in New York City, arrived at the Capitol on Thursday under heavy uh, security. His top priority? To make sure the number of Republicans unwilling to continue funding the war effort doesn't get any bigger. A meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield, who was also facing a looming government shutdown and a potential leadership coup by his by far-right members of his caucus, was first on Zelensky's agenda. The meeting was attended by committee and party leaders, including House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York. Zelensky later met with senators behind closed doors. McCarthy declined Zelensky's request for address a joint session of Congress, saying there wasn't enough time. He also reportedly declined a White House offer to give House lawmakers the same classified briefing the Senate received this week. Asked by reporters about the meeting with Ukraine's leader, McCarthy said only that it was good. When the meeting ended, McCarthy bolted to wrangle far-right members to back legislation to advance Pentagon funding. The measure failed in a floor vote, adding to the list of McCarthy's problems as the federal government barrels toward a shutdown by the end of this month. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, was more enthusiastic after his meeting with the Ukrainian president. American support for Ukraine is not a charity, he said after they met. It's an investment in our own direct interest, not least because degrading Russia's military power helps to deter our primary strategic adversary, China. Zelensky emphasized Ukraine's gratitude for U.S. assistance and expressed thanks to both parties in a tweet Thursday afternoon. We have accomplished much together to safeguard democracy, freedom, and dignity, values shared by both of our nations, he added. Many of California's Republican House members are in a particularly difficult position. Of the 18 Republicans from districts nationwide that President Biden won in 2020, five, nearly a third, are in California. If they continue to back the war effort, they could alienate the GOP base in their districts. But voting against Ukraine aid, which Democrats still support, could limit their crossover appeal. Peter Harris, 
A political scientist at Colorado State University told the Times that some Republicans opposed approving funding because they believed the United States should be more focused on defeating another world power, China. Harris also predicted that support for Ukraine will probably continue to wane as the war drags on. I wouldn't be surprised if a a pretty sizable faction within the Republican Party came to the determination that it would be politically prudent to end the war rather than supporting Ukraine, he said. Some Republicans vying for the White House have already made that call. During the GOP primary debate in August, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy said they would stop aid to Ukraine if elected president. It's not unusual for the opposition party to be skeptical of an administration's policies, Alex Conant, a Republican strategist, told the Times. Democrats were the first to critique then-President George W. Bush over the war in Iraq, and now some Republicans are doing the same for a Biden over his strategy for Ukraine, Conant noted. They're the opposition, so they're not invested in his policies, he said. Conant added that there is a small but growing number of Republicans who are very skeptical of foreign interventions, and that a small faction can, can cause big problems. Still a majority of the GOP backs sending military aid, especially in the Senate. Though support for the war has also slipped among Democratic voters since the invasion, the party's lawmakers remain overwhelmingly supportive of approving military aid. In an interview with the Times, Representative Jimmy Gomez, Democrat of Los Angeles, said that when when there is contention within any political party, people try to distinguish themselves from one another. He said that many Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee do understand the stakes. If American military aid stops, it will make the war even more challenging for Ukrainians. Propaganda pushed out uh, by the Kremlin is convincing many voters that the United States should not be involved in Ukraine, and some Republicans are gleefully repeating that propaganda, Gomez said. Congress must send a loud message across the globe that we stand by our friends and we're not going to let them take get not let them get taken over by a rogue country, he said. The role of the United States and its stature around the globe relies on us following through on our word, Gomez added. And if we allow a country like Russia to invade another country, it might create a willingness to take of, of other countries to take action through military might. Zelensky left the capital before noon, traveling to the Pentagon to meet with Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III. The Ukrainian leader also met with Biden at the White House that after, in the afternoon. Seated next to Biden in the Oval Office, Zelensky thanked the president for providing continued support to combat Russian terror. It's good that our countries are really, truly allies, he said. Today, I'm in Washington to strengthen our ability to defend Ukrainian children, our families, our homes, freedom, and democracy in the world. He added that he looked forward to their discussion on military support from the U.S. with a special emphasis on air defense. In a news conference, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Biden would announce a new package of military assistance that would include significant air defense capabilities to help Ukraine protect its people, as well as other weapons and equipment to enable the beleaguered nation to maintain its momentum in the counteroffensive. These capabilities will help Ukraine harden its defense ahead of what is likely to be a tough winter filled with renewed Russian attacks on Ukrainian critical infrastructure, he said.
The Pentagon has opted not to send Army Tactical Missile System long-range missiles to Ukraine, but Biden has not taken it off the table in the future, Sullivan said. Hours before Zelensky met with McCarthy, Ukraine was hit with the biggest barrage of Russian missiles in more than a month. Overnight, 43 Russian cruise missiles struck cities from east to west, including the capital, Kiev, the country's second largest city, Kharkiv, close to the Russian border, and Lviv, near the Polish frontier. Ukraine's military says it has, it has shot down 36 of the projectiles, including 20 over Kiev. Over a period of hours lasting until early morning, the repeated blare of air alarms sent people scrambling for shelter, many with small children and pets in town. In Kiev, falling debris damaged several buildings and left at least four people injured. Zelensky made a grim note of the wave of strikes, writing in a post on the messaging app Telegram that air defense is among the top issues as he seeks to win support in the U.S. Congress for more aid. Russia's defeat is an absolute necessity, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., told CNN this week. Ukraine has to win. Because if Ukraine loses this war, we all lose, she said. They are fighting on behalf of democracies around the world. The U.S., she added, will stand with Ukraine as long as they need us. That was Zelensky visits D.C. to seek more war aid by Aaron B. Logan from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, September 22, 2023. Time staff writers Tracy Wilkinson and Courtney Subramanian in Washington and Laura King in Kiev contributed to this report. All right, here's one more international story from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, September 21st, 2023. Germany shuts down neo-Nazi group from the Associated Press. Berlin. The German government Tuesday banned the neo-Nazi group Hammerskins uh, Germany, an offshoot of a right-wing American extremist organization, and raided the homes of dozens of its members. The Hammerskins Germany is an offshoot of the Hammerskins Nation, founded in the United States in 1988, according to the Interior Ministry. It plays a prominent role on the right-wing extremist scene in Europe. Worldwide, members of this association refer to themselves as brothers and see themselves as an elite brotherhood practicing their subcultural way of life. The group also sees itself as the elite of the right-wing extremist skinhead scene, according to the Interior Ministry. The ban of the Hammerskins Germany is a hard blow against organized right-wing extremism, Interior Minister Nancy Faser said, adding that the ban included the association's regional chapters and its sub-organization, Crew 38. With this ban, we are putting an end to the inhumane activities of an international active neo-Nazi association in Germany, she added. This sends a clear signal against racism and anti-Semitism. In Germany, the group comprises around 138 members. During their early morning raids in 10 states, police searched the homes of 28 group members. Ahead of the ban, the German federal and state governments cooperated intensively for more than a year, Faser said, adding that we also work closely with our American partners. The core element of the group's ideology is the propagation of a racial doctrine based on Nazi ideology. The purpose of the association Hammerskins Germany is to consolidate its right-wing extremist worldview, particularly through concerts where it tries to appeal to non-members to radicalize them, the ministry said. 
the right-wing extremist orientation of the internationally networking group manifests itself in particular through the distribution of recordings of right-wing extremist anti-Semitic music, the organization of right-wing extremist concerts, and the sale of right-wing extremist merchandise, it said. The ban of the Hammerskins Germany is the 20th ban of a right-wing extremist association by the German Interior Ministry. That was Germany shuts down at neo-Nazi group from the Associated Press out of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, September 21st, 2023. All right, and now back here at home. This is from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, September 21st, 2023. Garland says Justice Department will not be intimidated. The Attorney General counters charges from House Republicans that his agency has become politicized by Sarah D. Wire. Washington. Attorney General Merrick Garland stressed his independence from the White House and Congress during a contentious hearing on Capitol Hill on Wednesday. Our job is not to take orders from the president, from Congress, or from anyone else about who or what to criminally investigate, Garland said. As the president himself has said, and I reaffirm here today, I am not the president's lawyer. I will add that I am not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. Garland appeared before the House Judiciary Committee on Wednesday for what would normally be a routine oversight hearing focused on policy, crime, and department initiatives, but was instead expected to serve as a forum for Republicans to attempt to bolster their new impeachment inquiry against President President Biden. Republican lawmakers were sent to air grievances about the charges brought against former President Trump in the ongoing special counsel investigation of the president's son, Hunter Biden. The committee, led by House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, said the hearing would examine how the Justice Department has become politicized and weaponized under the leadership of Attorney General Merrick Garland. Jordan started the hearing by comparing the investigation of Hunter Biden by Special Counsel David Weiss to the two cases brought against Trump by Special Counsel Jack Smith. There's one investigation protecting President Biden. There's another one attacking President Trump, said Jordan. Justice Department got both sides of the equation covered. New York Representative Gerald Nadler, the highest-ranking Democrat on the committee, criticized Republicans for wasting time on fruitless investigations into Hunter Biden's laptop rather than oversight of the Justice Department or passing spending bills. I implore the public to see through this sham. I have no doubt that you will hear a deluge of conspiracy theories and baseless accusations, Nadler said. Republican committee members grilled Garland with rapid-fire assertions about his role in deciding who would conduct the ongoing investigation into Hunter Biden and statements made by a former Internal Revenue Service investigator, Gary Shapley, about that investigation. The GOP lawmakers made accusations that the Justice Department slow-walked potential felony tax charges for Hunter Biden until the statute of limitations expired. Garland remained soft-spoken, often declining to respond other than citing what is already in the public record. He reiterated that when he elected to keep Weiss, the prosecutor appointed in Delaware by Trump, he vowed not to interfere with the investigation into Biden, which has been underway for several years, including not being involved in charging decisions. Last month, Garland named Weiss special counsel after Weiss requested the designation, which gives him broader power. 
Weiss indicted Hunter Biden last week on two charges that he lied about his drug use to buy a handgun in 2018 and on one charge of illegally possessing the weapon. Mr. Weiss will have an opportunity to explain the decision to let the statute of limitations expire, Garland said. I have intentionally not involved myself in the facts of the case, not because I'm trying to get out of responsibility, but because I'm trying to pursue my responsibility. Garland warned Justice Department lawmakers uh, that Garland warned lawmakers that the Justice Department welcomes public scrutiny, criticism, and legitimate oversight, but cautioned that singling out individual career public servants who are just doing their jobs is dangerous, particularly at a time of increased threats to the safety of public servants and their families. We will not be intimidated, Garland said. We will do our jobs free from outside interference, and we will not back down from defending our democracy. That was Garland says Justice Department will not be intimidated by Sarah D. Wire from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, September 21st, 2023. Right now, here is something uh, with regards to Yom Kippur. This is from the Sunday section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 17th, 2023. What's an L.A. Jew to do on Yom Kippur if they don't go to synagogue? Observe the holiday meant for reflection and repentance at the beach, on a hike, or with loved ones. Whatever gets you into the mood to go deep by Deborah Netburn. Yom Kippur is a complicated holiday from Miriam Barzimar. The Jewish holiday, which begins this year on the evening of September 24th, is considered the holiest day of the year. A time of deep introspection, fasting, and repentance, which Jews have traditionally honored by spending the day in synagogue in a collective act of prayer, meditation, and atonement. But for Bar Zimar, a 29-year-old graduate student who was born in Israel and grew up fairly secular in Los Angeles, deciding what to do on that day is an annual challenge. Her family didn't belong to a synagogue for most of her childhood, and now as an adult, it's not a space that she finds conducive to self-reflection. Her father fasts, and some years she does too, but she feels like fasting in isolation misses the point. At the same time, eating normally doesn't seem right either. I feel like it, I feel like it being the most important holiday, I'm obligated to recognize it, but then I struggle to meld the tradition with my own interpretation of what it means to feel redemption, she said. It's a confusing day. She's not alone. Of more, the more than 564,000 people who identify as Jewish in L.A. roughly had say they intended to attend Yom Kippur services at a synagogue, according to a 2021 study by the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. While some of the remaining have treat Yom Kippur as just another day, others like Bar Zimmer feel a need to do something to honor the holiday, even if they aren't sure what an authentic recognition of this time looks like. Others have come up with their own ways to make meaning. Even for many non-religious Jews, Yom Kippur addresses a fundamental need, said Rabbi Tarlin Rabazadi, Vice President for Jewish Engagement at American Jewish University. We've got this one day to really wrestle and go deep, she said. It's like in our DNA. There are some people, mostly rabbis, who will tell you that Yom Kippur is their favorite holiday of the year, but for many Jewish people, it's a challenging day. In addition to the 25-hour fast, no food or water from sundown to the next day's sunset, traditional services last for hours, 
involve more standing than usual and are repetitive by design. You're also supposed to spend the day taking an honest and unflinching look at yourself and your actions over the past year, acknowledging the ways in which you hurt others, hurt yourself, did not live up to your ideals, or otherwise missed the mark. We find lots of ways to hide from our brokenness during the year, said Rabbi Joel Nickerson of Wilshire Boulevard Temple. This is the one day to focus on your brokenness, and you're supposed to do it in the presence of other people. It's a double layer of vulnerability. Despite all this painful soul-searching, uh, most rabbis will tell you that Yom Kippur is a hopeful holiday designed to help individuals examine, reckon with, and take action to shed their guilt and shame. But it doesn't always feel that way. A lot of people see it as a day they are supposed to not eat and sit in services that are boring, Nickerson said. That's on, that's on us as religious leaders to make the services more relevant and meaningful to people's lives. To address this disconnect, many synagogues <coughs> and Jewish communities have added alternative programs uh, to their offerings. Nefesh, a Jewish community on the east side of L.A., hosts an annual Yom Kippur urban retreat that includes a sound bath and a movement workshop that embodies the themes of the day. The Silver Lake Independent JCC is planning a walk-in live music experience on the eve of Yom Kippur with rotating musicians, poetry, art protections, and smoke machines. And at Wilshire Boulevard Temple, this year's Yom Kippur offerings will include a documentary screening, a service project, a lecture on the political situation in Israel, and an art project. In another departure from tradition, Nickerson plans to lead a paddleboard and prayer service on Sunday to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year that begins 10 days before Yom Kippur. We meet in Malibu, go into the ocean and circle up and do a service out there, he said. You can't just rely on people showing up for the traditional experiences. Traditional services, which can cost hundreds of dollars to attend for non-synagogue members, don't work for Carola Kaplan a retired English professor who now works as a psychoanalyst and who declined to give her age. She grew up in a non-observant household and became connected to Judaism as an adult. She finds studying Jewish religious texts spiritually stimulating, but spending the day at temple, less so. I don't really understand Hebrew, and just saying prayers vaguely is not that helpful or useful to me, she said. Kaplan has fasted on Yom Kippur in the past, but stopped years ago, after she sat next to a young undergraduate student at services who grew faint from not eating. I took him home with me and made lunch for both of us, she said. It felt more important to feed him than to fast, and that was my last experience with fasting. Now Kaplan spends Yom Kippur and the days before it, known as the Jewish tradition as the Yamim Noraim, or the Days of Ah, making a deliberate effort to reach out to friends and family with whom she has not been in regular contact. Especially at that time, I think about the people who are important to me, she said. And at this point in life, getting on as, as, is, as one is, it becomes more important to talk to people because you don't know how they are doing. For Danny Marr, 36, creating, a space, creating space for self-reflection on young people means climbing a mountain on her own. Last year, the South Pasadena resident took the day off of Yom, took the day of Yom Kippur off from work and drove up Angeles Crest Highway, 
for an eight-mile hike up Mount Badin Powell. I didn't want to fast, and I didn't want to go to synagogue, but I wanted to do something meaningful. She said, and I find and and I, I find I can be the most self-reflective and focused and not distracted when I'm out in nature and when I don't have cell service. Joe Goldman, 34, who lives in Brentwood and identifies as proudly Jewish and atheist, describes the holiday as having a weight around it that is felt by both religious and non-religious Jews. Even if you don't think about your Jewish identity for 364 days a year, chances are that at a minimum, if you forgot it was Yom Kippur, then you find out, and, and then you find out you are probably going to feel badly or guilty, he said. Over the past few years, he has honored the holiday by speaking at synagogues about his work as community engagement director for the Western region of, I, of HIAS, a Jewish nonprofit that resettles refugees. My office is officially closed on Yom Kippur, but if there is an opportunity to bring more people into the, the work I'm doing, I want to take it, he said. I find that experience really meaningful. He doesn't fast. I don't find it helps me be a better, more introspective, healthy person. But he always attends his family's large meal to break the fast at the end of the day. There's something really joyous about it, he said. It's like a family reunion. Cantor Jonathan Friedman, the community leader of Adad Havarim, a small humanistic community that emphasizes Jewish culture rather than the the theistic religion, said the group holds one service to cover both Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We take the high notes from both of the holidays, filter it through a humanistic lens, and give it to the people in about an hour, he said. It's rather informal and also meaningful. The community deliberately leaves the day of Yom Kippur open to allow congregants to choose how to honor it in a way that feels authentic to each individual. Some feel like they already acknowledge the high holidays and treat Yom Kippur as just another day, while others might join family for more conventional services. Still others, like Friedman, who also works as a dean at the Academy for Jewish Religion, California, take the day off from work and commemorate the holiday in the way the average American might celebrate Memorial Day or July 4th, as a day to pause, reflect, and be grateful for the break from daily life. For Jews who are keyed into their culture, I think Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah play that role, he said. These are important days that you shouldn't treat like other days, but that doesn't mean you have to go to synagogue. Rabbi Noah Farkas, president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, said he's not surprised that roughly half of the Jewish adults in Los Angeles choose to spend Yom Kippur outside of synagogue. After all, the city is filled with creative thinkers and abundant, awe-inspiring beauty. Some don't care at all, but the other 49% are up in the mountains, they are riding bikes on the beach. They are meditating on the waves or meeting with friends to come up with creative rituals on how to let go of what is holding them down, he said. All those things are exploding at once. Farkas said the traditional Yom Kippur practices of not eating, sitting in synagogue, carving one's head with a prayer shawl, and abstaining from the delights of the world help him get into a space of self-reflection, but he understands that doesn't, that doesn't work for everyone. If that's not the right technology for you, then go find the thing that gets you into that place, he said. And if you're a creative person, make the thing. As for Bar Zimar, she still doesn't know how she'll spend Yom Kippur this year, but she appreciates 
that there are a variety of options available to her. The beauty of Judaism to me is that there's so much diversity, she said. And that was what's an L.A. Jew to do on Yom Kippur if they don't go to synagogue by Deborah Netburn from the Sunday section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, September 17, 2023. Now here's something else from the uh, Sunday section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, September 17, 2023. Forget babka. Try the simpler kokosh uh, to break Yom Kippur fast. A bittersweet chocolate filling and crunchy crumb topping define this tasty Hungarian Jewish traditional cake by Ben Mims. Last year, I was invited to my first breaking of the fast for Yom Kippur and was asked to bring a dessert. Because I had never taken part in any Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur meals, I asked my host and friend Sam what I should bring. Anything, he said. There are no rules. This gave me pause. There must be something that's traditionally eaten to mark Yom Kippur, which take place, takes place 10 days after Rosh Hashanah and is the holiest day of the year in Judaism. The holiday requires fasting from sundown on the evening before Yom Kippur to sunset the next day. I want to bring something unexpected besides a honey cake, which is associated more with Rosh Hashanah than Yom Kippur. I set about researching, trying, to find, try, trying my best to find something that would work. Because I was cooking for a large crowd, I decided to make three desserts with tangential connections to the holiday. As determined by the Google search Yum Kippur desserts, I ended up making a flourless chocolate cake, a crumb cake, and a Zwetkuschten, a German tart made with Italian prune plums from a recipe by the Jewish cookbook author Joan Nathan. However, the chocolate cake was too dense and the crumb cake too dry. That's what I get for taking random recipes off the internet, I guess. Thankfully, Nathan's plum tart was perfect, and everyone had seconds of that one after politely choking down silvers of the chocolate and crumb cakes. I gave myself a full year to come up with something better and more original for this season's Yom Kippur. I reached out to my friend, New York staff writer Helen Rossner, and she suggested I check out the seven-layer cake made by Stern's Bakery, a Brooklyn-based wholesale bakery that supplies cakes and pastries to many of the nation's kosher grocery stores. A seven-layer cake is essentially a rectangular version of Dobo's Torte, a classic Hungarian dessert. Seven thin layers of cake alternating with chocolate frosting and covered in melting chocolate. And while I like the seven-layer cake, its kosher designation meant its frosting had to be shortened based, so it had a slick quality that made it taste not unlike a Swiss roll snack cake from Little Debbie. This was not a bad thing, but with all the layering and chocolate coating, I wanted uh, inspiration from a dessert that was less complicated. While shopping for the seven-layer cake, I came across another Stern's product called Hamimish Kokosh. It was covered in crumbs, spiraled with chocolate, and looked like a fatter and flatter version of a strudel, one of my favorite desserts. After I brought them both home, my partner and I found ourselves returning to the Kokosh over and over again for breakfast, an afternoon snack, and dessert. It was just barely sweet, chewy, and gooey, but not decadent, and had plenty of crunch from the crumbs on top. This was the cake I wanted for my official Yom Kippur dessert. Sometimes referred to in Jewish bakeries as a chocolate-filled rolled, rolled strips 
Kokosh, Hungarian for cocoa, is basically a mix between babka, which is often layered with chocolate, twisted and loaf-shaped, and strudel, which is a long loaf of thin pastry wrapped around a cooked filling. It looks more like a strudel, but the dough is yeast-raised and short, which means it has a high flat-to-flour ratio from the additional addition of butter. It is rolled with a chocolate filling into a spiral log that's then baked golden brown. In Hungary, kalaks are yeast-raised cakes. The name comes from Slavic kolach, which comes from kolo, meaning circle. Other Eastern European relatives of kokos can be found in the Polish makowicz, a cake made with a yeast, a yeasted short dough spiral roll with poppy seeds and raisins that's then baked in a log and iced. There is also Czech kolachy, a Polish and Polish kolachy, both sometimes referred to as Bohemian buns, that are yeasted sweet buns filled with poppy seed or fruit filling, that are then topped with a crumble with a crumble topping. This is one of the few times you see a crumb topping added to such yeasted filled cakes. The other insistence is with specifically the Hamish kokos made by Stearns. Why the name? Various Eastern European cakes became coffee cakes with the addition of high sugar crumb toppings or a mixture of sugar and nuts that creates a crunchy contrast to yeasted or egg-risen cake batters. This stands in opposition to the fine cakes that were uniformly smooth in texture and filled or glazed for dessert preparations. In Germany, crumb coffee cakes or Stuzelkuchen were were and are still made by sprinkling a crumb topping over a basic yeast-raised sweet dough. The word hemish is basically Yiddish for homemade or a kind of home style, says Manash Stern, part of the Stern's bakery family. It's really a name we give to our cocos that has the extra gooey chocolate filling. No matter how many requests we get for gluten-free, sugar-free, all the frees, we always see that most of our really decadent hardcore chocolate baked goods like Kokosh and Rugalak, nothing sells better. So it seems that adding a crumb topping, something that's not a given in all Kokosh free slicing and an extra gooey filling, give Kokosh that homey feel from the perspective of the bakers at Stearns, which I find delightful. According to the newish Jewish encyclopedia by Stephanie Butnick, Leo Leibovitz, and Mark Oppenheimer, artist in 2019. <clears throat> Kokosh is simply the Hungarian Jewish version of babka that is often baked flat and sometimes without streusel. This has led to Kokosh's nickname by many Jews being flat babka. And according to Iconic New York Jewish Food, a history and guide with recipes by June Hirsch, American Palate, 2023, the bread-cake hybrid we know now as babka was first called kokosh by Hungarian Jewish immigrants who baked it in New York City. In many ways, I view kokosh as the home cook's version of babka since the latter's complex braiding and twisting is best left to the professional bakeries. But at home, when you don't have to worry about precision, the Kokosh's charms shine. It's a purposefully flat cake, thanks to not having to let the shape loaf rise a second time that eats like a sweetened bread, which is the ideal breakfast. 
and the Hamish Cocoche's crumb topping adds plenty of texture and sweetness to counteract the deliciously bitter cocoa filling. Whereas some recipes for cocoche, and there aren't that many, call for rolling the dough up in a, into a log and baking it, I prefer the slouchy, flat shape of Stern's cocoche. My friend Leah Koenig, author of many Jewish cookbooks, including this year's Portico Cooking and Feasting in Rome's Jewish Kitchen, W.W. Norton, has the best recipe I've found for cocoche, rolling it into a cylinder and brushing it with egg wash before baking. While her dough serves as inspiration for this recipe, I prefer to fold the dough into wide, flat sheets rather than a tight roll because it provides a wide canvas for the crumb topping. I use a more generous amount of crumbs than even the Stearns version displays because more crumbs are never a bad thing in my book. Once it's baked, you can cut the cocos into long finger-shaped planks that are perfect for resting alongside your morning or afternoon cup of coffee. Cocos is decidedly less rich than all of the aforementioned sweet yeasted breads uh, because it is often kosher, so it doesn't contain butter or dairy, like milk or sour cream, as many other, many other of these yeasted roll cakes do. But this is precisely why I love it for breakfast so much. It feels like a treat you can actually eat with coffee and not be left feeling like it will ruin the rest of your day. It's the ideal way to break the Yom Kippur fast, giving you just a taste of sweetness. That was Forget Babka, Try the Simpler Cocos to Break Your Yum Kippur Fast by Ben Sims from the Los Angeles Times Sunday section, Sunday, September 17th, 2023. And once again from the Los Angeles Times uh, calendar section for Sunday, September 17th, 2023, this is called His Fake Rabbi, A Mitzvah. Todd Goldberg revisits Gangsterland, Anti-Hero, and the Real Spiritual Journey that Led Him There by Jim Ruland. Todd Goldberg has many enemies, a former mayor of Indio, members of the Palm Springs Facebook group, and those who make comments rather than ask questions during literary events have all felt the sting of the novelist's caustic wit. Goldberg is charming and sharp, with a quip for every occasion, but he can also be ruthlessly profane, both in person and on the page. I get letters, Goldberg said over dinner at San Diego's Little Italy. He was winding down from a panel at BookerCon, a traveling annual convention for writers and readers of crime fiction. It's never you killed 15 people in your book, he continued. Instead, they say, I was really surprised by how much profanity was in your book. That's such a strange thing about crime fiction. Can't kill dogs or swear too much, but you can kill every single human you come in contact with. Goldberg's new novel, Gangsters Don't Die, concludes a series of books he began in 2014 with Gangsterland the story of a Chicago hitman named Sal Cupertine, who, with the help of plastic surgery and a mobster named Benny Savoni, begins a new life in Las Vegas as Rabbi David Cohen. In 2017's Gangster Nation, both the FBI and Sal's enemies close in on his ongoing criminal enterprise at the Temple, where he oversees a lucrative body laundering business. The Low Desert, a collection of stories set in the Gangsterland universe, appeared in 2021. The new novel wraps up the saga with an explosive yet heartfelt finish. The origins of the series can be traced back to Sal's first appearance in the 2008 short story, Mitzvah. I knew from the beginning it was going to be a three-book series, Goldberg says. 
It took several years of research before he was ready to write Gangsterland, and once he immersed himself in the world of a contract killer who will do anything to keep his secret safe, he resolved not to pull any punches. There was a choice I made, starting in the first book, Goldberg said, where if someone gets shot in the face, it's not like in the movies, where a little blood trickles out of a hole. If you shoot someone in the face, their face gets ripped off. I want to show that. I want to show that it's not like a cartoon, that the violence is real. Although each book stands on its own, taken together, the gangsterland novels really read like a single sweeping story with a large cast and numerous storylines, which Goldberg compares to the slow-developing characters arc over the course of several seasons of shows like Game of Thrones and The Wire. This gave Goldberg a great deal of latitude to tell the story in an emotionally satisfying way. For our help pulling uh, the threads together, Goldberg credits his editor, Dan Smetanka, and his older brother, Lee, who was also a critically acclaimed novelist and bestseller. It was super helpful to have this guy, who has written 10 different series, be a consultant for me at a moment's notice, Goldberg said. Lee, who was also in attendance of BokerCon to celebrate the release of his latest novel, Malibu Burning, is proud of his sibling and impressed with his achievement. It takes real skill to take a premise that absurd and make it believable, Lee said. Goldberg's success in this anti-heroic mode is rare in the world of crime fiction. Where many writers emphasize the violence of their stories, Goldberg pays equal attention to its psychic aftermath. He confesses that he hates crime novels in which the main character does a bunch of crazy, horrible, awful things for 350 pages, only to be rewarded with a schmaltzy scene that sweeps the trauma under the rug. No, you're going to therapy, Goldberg said. Everyone's going to therapy after this. Goldberg has carved out a niche for himself in Desert Noir, and his peers have taken notice. The desert is a deadly place, even before the bad men show up, said Har Jordan and Harper, author of Everybody Knows. What Goldberg does so well is give us the oasis of humor and insight and compelling character to go along with that deadliness. The research Goldberg conducted for the series didn't involve mob lore or the exigencies of crushing someone's windpipe. Rather, he began an intensive study of the holy books. I'm not a great Jew, he said. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. When I started writing this, I didn't know enough about my own family history, about the struggle my family had gone through. The Talmud says you must know where you come from, at least according to Sal. There's a running joke through the Gangsterland series that whenever Sal is exercising his duties as Rabbi David Cohen and he can't think of a suitable response from the Talmud, he quotes Bruce Springsteen lyrics instead. Nevertheless, the fake rabbi had to emerge from a real place. So Goldberg set out to learn his ancestral history and discovered that his mother's parents left Bar in present-day Ukraine in 1919, just before the Russians killed all the Jews there. All the members of the family who stayed behind were slain. Goldberg sees this discovery as nothing less than a battle for my own sense of faith. It was imperative as a second-generation American that he understand the sacrifices made just to get him to this time and place so that he could enjoy the privilege of writing these books. It's not surprising, then, that uh, Sal Cooperdine sounds a lot like Todd Goldberg, especially when he's posing as Rabbi David Cohen. 
We share a lot of similar, similar beliefs, Goldberg admitted. I don't typically feel this way. Fiction is fiction, but there's a lot of me in that character. I'm not a violent person, but his point of view of the world about the way organized crime has warmed its way into every aspect of our lives, those are my beliefs too. Perhaps this explains Goldberg's willingness to make enemies online by calling out bad behavior on social media platforms, especially when it's from uh, people in power. Like when he challenged Indio City Councilman and former mayor Mike Wilson over allegedly offensive comments. During the next election cycle, Wilson was voted out of office. Well, that's a perfect example of trolling going well, Goldberg said. Although Sal accepts that his life is an irredeemable mess, in his role as a rabbi, he embraces the opportunity to be of service to his congregation. Does Goldberg, who teaches at UC Riverside, where he founded and directs the Palm Desert Low Residency MFA writing program, feel the same way about Israel? Absolutely, he said. Every single person that comes through the MFA program arrives with a dream unfulfilled. It's my job to try to get them there. It is the most important thing in my life. Other than my wife and my art, it's a holy thing. As Bukharan was winding down, L.A. crime writer Ivy Pakoda was also an instructor at, at Palm Desert. Full disclosure, I was a visiting lecturer in June, raved about Goldberg's commitment to his students and peers. Todd is easily one of the funniest people I've ever met, Pakoda said. But, as, but what his pervasive humor can sometimes distract from is his deep engagement with literature in all forms and his devotion and compassion for his students. This man goes above and beyond for his students and friends. And what about the rabbi? After three novels and several stories, is this really the, la the less we'll see of him? The conclusion of Gangsters Don't Lie dangles enough loose ends to leave the door open for a follow-up. Moreover, that Gangsterland series would make for an outstanding television series. But after more than 15 years, Goldberg says he's ready to move on. I feel like his story is complete. And while I miss his voice in my head, I'm already to also ready to figure out what the next thing is. In short, Goldberg has some free time ahead of him. The politicians of the Inland Empire have been duly warned. That was his fake rabbi, a mitzvah, by Jim Ruland. From the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, September 17, 2023, Ruland's latest novel, Make It Stop, was published in June. Right, on to more entertainment news from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, September 10, 2023, where the arts add to a sense of well-being. The new Gloria Kaufman Performing Arts Center at the Vista Del Mar nonprofit on the West Side expands on a tradition of community and cultural outreach by Stephen Vargas. A coat rack adorned with over a dozen hard hats stands near the entrance of philanthropist and dancer Gloria Kaufman's home. Each one bears the distinctive logo of a project she has donated to through her Gloria uh, Kaufman Foundation, including the Mar Vista Family Center, USA Kaufman School of Dance, Inner City Arts, and the Juilliard School. The latest addition, a hat, a hard hat emblazoned with the logo of Vista Del Mar Child and Family Services a nonprofit institution on the West Side that provides mental health services for children experiencing behavioral disorders or who have neurodivergent needs. The center recently added a theater named spaced after, space named after her, the Gloria Kaufman Performing Arts Center. 
Designed by AUX Architecture, the venue was a 299-seat multi-use performing arts space that includes classrooms, rehearsal rooms, and a theater. It's meant to accommodate students and residents at Vista Del Mar as well as local artists. The newly expanded building has been utilized by Vista Del Mar for the last two years by students and residents who are seeking treatment and therapy services. On August 24, the Gloria Kaufman Performing Arts Center had a grand opening to launch three new programs that opened the building up to the local arts community a USA alumni residency, an LA independent choreographer residency, and universal hip-hop outreach. The opening celebration featured dance performances by local artists uh, performing ballet and contemporary, as well as musical performances by Vista Del Mar residents and actor-musician Kenton Chen. The new Performing Arts Center aims to become a force within the LA arts landscape welcoming more artists and uh, to create within the Vista Del Mar community. I want everybody to dance, Kaufman says. I think it's healthy. After you dance, you go home and you go to bed and you feel great. After first visiting the Vista Del Mar campus in 2016, Kaufman says she saw a need for a performing arts space there. With her philanthropic efforts, Kaufman doesn't like to fund a single performance because of its epithet ephemeral and temporary nature. Instead, she says she likes to give tools so that institutions and organizations can form communities. I try and find things that I can really make a difference, that, that I can really make a difference, she says. Kaufman, a primary funder of the project, declined to disclose the total cost of her donation to the center. The Gloria Kaufman Performing Arts Center will be used by the Vista Del Mar School from 8.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m and available for use by outside artists in the afternoon and evening. Sarah Silkin, Artistic and Managing Director of the Center, joined in July 2021 with the objective of figuring out how to best utilize the 299-seat theater. Silkin was also the Managing Director of G-Sun Studios and has a background in dance, film, and product producing live events, saw the potential in the space as a location for film and television rentals and live performances. The goal is not to generate income when we're dealing with artists, but to really generate income when we're dealing with film and television industries, Silkin says. This fall, the center's programming will welcome local independent choreographers on the rise. This includes Stephen Day, JA Collective, and Madison Maddie Falconer, who are all part of the USA Alumni Residency. In addition, Universe Soul Hip Hop, which was founded and led by USC faculty Tiffany Bong, will offer classes once a week for students and residents at Vista Del Mar. The partnership program between the newly opened center and the pre-existing USC Gloria Coppin School of Dance. In 2015, Coppin funded a new building on the university campus that now houses the dance major was a two-year process. Emerging dance artists like those graduating from the school often take a patchwork approach to their careers by working freelance across stage and screen. Having this residency in LA at the Gloria Coppin Performing Arts Center allows dancers to see the viability of having a career in LA through having opportunities like this, USA Kaufman Dean Julia M. Ritter says. 
USC's dance school already has pre-existing partnerships with LAUSD called Kaufman Connections that offer hip-hop classes to elementary school students. Silken's direction is one reason why USC wanted to partner with the center, Ritter says. She's modeling being an artist in the world. She's modeling being a leader in the world, Ritter says. I thought, wouldn't this be incredible to have some of our alums be connected to somebody like this who was, who's in L.A. and making their career? Silken, a dancer in her own right, focused on elevating independent artists because she understands the hardship they face. It's very rare that we see spaces like the Broad, the Music Center, the Wallace, or anything else really support an individual, she says. It's generally an organization or a company. I think that's what's been, been missing in the LA community in terms of theater spaces. By 2024, she hopes to bring the residency artists back to teach kids at Vista Del Mar. The programs all support dance artists in Los Angeles, but that may not always be the case in the future. Second plans to expand programs to other forums like music and theater. It's really not limiting partnerships, but allowing that door to be open to multiple partnerships, she says. From the very beginning, the center was designed to embolden partnerships, artists, and students. Brian Wickersham, one of the leading architects behind the building, sought to construct something dramatically different from the rest of the campus that could satisfy the various uses of the building, from classes to events. Wickersham focused on creating multi-purpose rooms alongside essential theater spaces, such as a dressing room and a costume prop room. From the very beginning, we knew that we wanted the exterior of the building to be really quiet and calming in its aesthetic, Wickersham says. And then the interior we wanted it the interior we wanted it to be very warm and peaceful and inviting for the kids. The Gloria Kaufman Performing Arts Center design is inspired by Lamentation, a solo by Martha Graham. In the classic piece, Graham is wrapped in a garment that encases her. As she extends her limbs, the fabric stretches to create shapes around her. This dancer struggles within the garment and then the movements within the dress and then and the distortion that happens was really to us was really to us symbolic of the struggles that a lot of kids with autism go through, he says. Dance and performance can be healthy a healthy way for kids to express themselves in a safe environment. Wickersham wanted the space to offer the same. The visually rhythmic elements of the exterior columns of the building as seen through the repeated exterior columns and lines across the north and west-facing walls conceal the inside for a warm environment established out of polycarb polycarbonate and quiet plastics. In that sense, the Performing Arts Center felt like the living room of the campus, he says. The process of building this space was not without hardship. Upon construction, Wickersham noticed that the foundation was not as stable as the anticipated and he and the other architects had to rethink the structural system midway through the process. The team also built the center during the height of the pandemic, which presented health safety issues. It was one of the more challenging building, builds of my, I've ever experienced in my career, but it was also, I think, at the end of the day, one of the most rewarding because of what we were able to do for Vista Del Mar and for all the kinds that are all the kids that are going to get to use the building, he says. The mission of Vista Del Mar and the Performing Arts Center 
is to heal and use art as therapy, says Wilson, the nonprofit's president and CEO. Sometimes our kids have anger issues and don't have patience for each other and other students. But in the space, they are so patient with each other, Wilson says. They enjoy working with each other. They have so much fun. The school also offers high school education and residents are 12 to 18 years old. Wilson says that many students come in with trauma and struggle to find the right words to express their feelings and emotions. The great thing is the performing arts is very healing, he adds. She adds, it gives them the opportunity to have a sense of self-expression that they haven't had before. That was Where the Arts Add to a Sense of Well-Being by Stephen Vargas from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 10, 2023. Okay, here's this next one here from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 10, 2023. Making Sense of Twisted Politics by Chris Wagner. At first, Naomi Klein thought it was kind of funny. More and more people were confusing the prolific capitalism critic with Naomi Wolf, the author of The Beauty Myth, an erstwhile feminist star who has become a font of conspiracy theorists, theories on everything from Ebola, the U.S. wanted to spread the virus and launch a military takeover, to COVID-19, the vaccines can shed the government is eavesdropping through your vaccine passports. It was a periodic annoyance. No big deal, Klein said in a recent video interview. It didn't happen all that much. I stumbled across somebody online who was very angry at me for something, and it took me a minute to realize it wasn't me they were angry with. Then, gradually, the social media echo chamber grew deafening. The pandemic quarantine meant more hours online for just about everyone, including both Naomi's. Wolf and her easily agitated cadre, which now included right-wing firebrands Tucker Carlson and Steve Bannon, were hitting the COVID conspiracies hard and describing a dark fantasy version of real-world crises. Millions seemed to be buying it. This, Klein realized, was serious. On both a personal and political level, the Naomi conflation went from periodic annoyance to existential dilemma. So Klein, the author of Liberal Calls to Action, including No Logo and The Shock Doctrine, did what she does. She wrote a book about it. Doppelganger, a trip into the mirror world, isn't about Klein's Naomi Wolf problem per se, as Klein says. She's like the white rabbit who I followed down the rabbit hole, and the book is really about the rabbit hole. More specifically, it's about the mirror world a place inhabited not just by the conspiracy mongers willfully taking advantage of public confusion and anxiety, but potentially by all of us. We all live in a world of social media, after all. We constantly risk warping ourselves, changing our personae as circumstances shift, infecting our children with fears and dreams that aren't their own. The doppelganger provides a lens that lets you look at a bunch of different things that I think are quite interesting, Klein says including the way we create doubles of ourselves in order to perform ourselves online, whether it's in a video game, as an avatar, or an idealized, beautiful person on Instagram or a mom influencer. We're partitioning ourselves up, and we're creating this double, and we're polishing it, and we're burnishing it. In short, to borrow the title of a doppelganger movie client examines the book, Doppelganger is about us. As Klein writes, we live in a culture crowded with various forms of doubling in which all of us who maintain our persona 
or avatar online create our own doppelgangers, virtual versions of ourselves that represent us to others. A doppelganger we perform ceaselessly in the digital ether as the price of admission in a rapacious attention economy. In this economy, the one with the most clicks wins, and the one with the most outlandish take gets the most clicks. That helps explain the supply side of the world we live in, where talk of Maui space lasers, space lasers 5G vaccine surveillance, and blood-sucking pedophile rings is pounding on the gates of mainstream thought. But the demand side is trickier, and perhaps more doubling. What, perhaps, what makes consumers with nothing tangible to gain subscriber to woo-woo theories? The way Klein sees it, when reality is too much to bear, many escape into fantasy. The illusion of control, or at least comprehension, is often more tolerable than the chaos that increasingly surrounds us. We're in a moment of multiple and difficult reckonings, and COVID brought a lot of it into the focus, Klein says. There's a... there's. There's the way we treat our elders, the way we the working class is mistreated, and the mirror that was held up to the lockdown class, the people like me who were able to stay home. The only reason we were able to stay home and stay safe was because other people were out there with very, very little protection, delivering food, working in slaughterhouses, Amazon, warehouses, and nursing homes. And suddenly the veil was pulled back on how our world actually works. Like Klein's other books, Doppelganger is an in-depth critique of what late-stage capitalism hath wrought. But it's also much more. Klein wields her polymathic expertise like a sword, slicing through the mirror world via political theory, tech anxiety, she shudders at AI's potential, literary criticism, she warms up to former nemesis Philip Roth through his doppelganger novel Operation Shylock, and films, famous Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, and Obscure, Henrik Galeen's silent oddity, The Stunt of Prague. The results might put the two might put the reader at risk of splitting in splitting in two. He can't help but be invigorated by Klein's intellectual synthesis and dexterity, even as her gimlet eye makes you want to run screaming into the night. Much of it comes back to the woman Klein calls the other Naomi, and the strange bedfellows she has embraced. It pains Klein to see Bannon, Wolf, and company co-opt legitimate concerns like internet privacy and government-mandated COVID school closures and convert them, convert them into science fiction theories. She places some of the blame on the left's instinct to dismiss outright anything emanating from the right-wing echo chamber instead of working harder to find common ground in reality. The conspiracy theorists get the facts wrong, but they often get the feelings right, she says. The feeling of living in a world with shadow worlds. The feeling of having important truths hidden from you. And then other, the other thing they offer is a sense of community and belonging. Sometimes they seem to be having a lot of fun. And that could be vital at a time of growing societal isolation and deaths of despair. There's a lot going on in Doppelganger, yet somehow Klein ties it all together into what we seem to be lacking as individuals, a cohesive whole. Doppelganger, Doppelganger is both timely and timeless, a work in a grand tradition. Things fall apart, W.B. Yeats wrote in his 1920 poem, The Second Coming, The Center Cannot Hold. Nearly 50 years later, Joan uh, Didion referenced his verse 
in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, a tour through ex the existential crisis of the 1960s. Now we have another spirited guide, a source of fact-based understanding, if not always solace. That was Making Sense of Twisted Politics by Chris Wagner from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 10, 2023. Wagner is a freelance writer based in Houston. Okay, here's this next one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. Sordid yet sublime. Arturo Ripstein, Mexico's legendary indie film giant, gets his due with L.A. Retrospective by Carlos Aguilar. Hollywood's wholehearted embrace of Mexico's Alfonso Cuaron, Alejandro Gonzalez, Enaritu, and Guillermo del Toro has earned them an enviable influential standing. Five directing Oscars in the last 10 years along, alone and a nickname, The Three Amigos. Before getting there, however, who showed them the way? The hyper-successful trio has always acknowledged one particular living cinematic forebear with gratitude and admiration. An imposing mythical director, Cuaron tells the Times, a soldier of Mexican cinema, Pura Gonzalez in Enaritu, says Del Toro, calling from Los Angeles, he was incredibly kind to me when he didn't need to be. That man is Arturo Ripstein, one of the pillars of his nation's independent movie-making throughout the second half of the 20th century. Though he's never found much acclaim on this side of the border, Ripstein occupies a vaunted status at home, entrenched between the sordid and the sublime. Imagine a cross between Michael Haneke and Pedro Amaldovar. Addictively, he evokes realms of unvarnished humanity, always steeped in morality, objectionable behaviors, and desires. And now it's our turn to catch up. This week, the American Cinema Tech and the Ola Mexican Film Festival will co-host Ripstein and Paz Alicia Garcia Diego is longtime screenwriter and wife in Los Angeles for a seven-day retrospective in honor of the director's career. Beginning September 14 at the Arrow Theater and Los Feliz 3. It's the first time the Mexican master will enjoy such a celebration in the world and in the entertainment capital of the world. As a young man, I thought I'm very interested in two things, that my films are shown worldwide and to be able to live up to my work recalls Ripstein 79 during a recent video call from Mexico City. And that sort of thing happened in Hollywood. I want to try it out, but no one there was interested. Not unlike the tone of his films, there's a biting humor in how Ripstein speaks about his long, mischievous run of work, especially when he seeks as his own unfulfilled potential. I want to be Fellini or Kurosawa or Fritz Lang, but it didn't happen, he says the smallest chip on his shoulder visible. Luck chose for me to be Arturo Ripstein, and I've resigned myself to being him all these years. In over 30 films since the 1960s, Ripstein's lurid, ferocious heroes have included a pair of perverse killers, 1996's Dip, Deep Crimson, a trans prostitute running a brothel, 1978's The Place Without Limits, and a monstrous father keeping his family in captivity, 1973's The Castle of Purity, while others may judge these characters harshly, Ripstein centers them unabashedly. Art has to make the invisible visible, and that is enormously dangerous, Ripstein says, because one can live very calmly with the invisible. Both in its depiction of horror and pleasure, his catalog brims with viciousness. 
the universe of Ripstein and Garcia Dago fearlessly delves into the swamps and darkness of the human soul. Gonzalez and Arito adds via email, describing their viewpoint as paradoxically violent and nihilistic, while also being compassionate and melancholic. The son of famous producer Alfredo Ripstein, a young Arturo had made up his mind about wanting to work in film. But it wasn't until they watched Luis Buñuel's savage 1959 satire, Nazarene, that he decided on his specific calling. The 15-year-old Ripstein showed up at Buñuel's office, declaring he would become a director. The Spanish surrealist, a friend of Ripstein's father, didn't say much, but showed him his classic Un Cien Andalo, and later let him hang around his sets. Contrary to what Wikipedia says, Ripstein maintains he was never Buñuel's assistant. My dad didn't want me to be a filmmaker. He was convinced that I was a bit out of an idiot, and not without reason, attended Ripstein recalls. Finally, through threats and fright, I convinced him to let me make a movie. Ripstein cites his contumacy, a fancy synonym for stubbornness, as a decisive factor in maintaining an uninterrupted career for 60 years. The first effort, 1966's Time to Die, caught Ripstein, taught Ripstein, then 21, about the disappointments of his chosen profession. His father imposed a cast on him and demanded that the film be a Western, a profitable genre at the time. But it also ignited Ripstein's lifelong creative bond with future Nobel Prize winning author Gabriel Garcia Marquez, then working in publicity, who co-wrote the screenplay with Carlos Fuentes, another award-winning novelist-to-be. Quarren remembers being astounded by Time to Die about a gunman who serves time for murder and must now face the victim's son. Already, says the Gravity and Roma director, Ripstein had such a command of the language of cinema and a potent interest in the darkest corners of human nature. I once told Arturo that this was his best movie, which I don't think he was he was happy about. But I still believe it's a masterpiece about an, an, an enviable tragedy. From then on, Ripstein favored working with novelists rather than professional screenwriters. And when he first collaborated with Garcia Dago, a former children's educator and TV writer in the 1980s on The Realm of Fortune, he felt as though he'd finally found an ideal artistic ally. The voice of my eyes, he calls her. Adapted from a story by lauded author Juan Rofo, The Realm of Fortune, which centers on an impoverished man trying to jumpstart his luck by entering the world of cockfighting, swept the Ariel Awards, the Mexican Oscars, nabbing nine trophies, including Best Director for Ripstein. The script's past rights are very descriptive, Ripstein says, completely different from the austerity that screenwriting teachers preach. Here, hyperbole and excess reign. Her scripts are novels with, uh, with dialogue. They can be read not only as work plan, a work plan, but as literature. Among Ripstein's uh, recurrent sources of inspiration, true crime holds a special place. His first box office hit, and still one of his best-regarded films, 1973's The Castle of Purity, emerged directly from shocking 1959 headlines about Rafael Perez Hernandez, a man who for 18 years locked up his wife and children inside their home to save them from being contaminated by the filth of the outside world. I always like the criminal cases in the newspaper because they are narratively perfect, Ripstein explains. They are well-structured, they have a beginning with motivations. They have a very clear development and, above all, 
they have a very precise ending. For both Quaron and Enaritu, the castle of purity was their initial encounter with Ripstein's brutal world. I don't know if it's my favorite of his, but it's the one that most impressed me because I first watched it as a child, recalls Enaritu. Similarly, Precocious Quaron was 12 years old when he saw it. Another crime title, Deep Crimson, became Ripstein's most acclaimed. The director and Garcia Dego transposed the cast, the case of America's infamous Lonely Hearts killers, Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez, to a Mexican context for richly textured noir about deadly passion. Recently restored to its original longer cup and screened at last week's Venice Film Festival, the updated version will have its U.S. premiere as part of this retrospective. His stories are universal, says Del Toro, himself a shaper of dark fables that have connected with audiences globally. He can take Serena de Bergerac or Romeo and Juliet and translate it to Mexico by just changing the specificity of the tale. That's what he does. He's very deliberate and very thoughtful about it. Sitting in front of his computer's camera in a room overflowing with books, Ripstein invokes another true crime enthusiast to explain his complex attraction to the blood-soaked genre. As Truman Capote used to say, when God hands you a gift, he also hands you a whip, he says. The gift from me was being able to film, and that a punishment was having to see them. Seeing my movies has always been very difficult for me. Alongside the seductive beauty Ripstein derives from tragedy and misery, he also revels in Mexico's colloquial language and popular culture with a panache that's often poetic. Akin to the macabre lyricism of David Lynch's moving dreams, Ripstein's intoxicating frames real otherworldly. While films are not politically, anthropolo anthropologically, noir, sociologically valid, Ripstein says, they belong to a world that I've created for myself within which there are rules, regulations, meaning, and structure to everything. The director doesn't see the evil that populates his scenes as uniquely Mexican, but simply his interpretation of the only place he's ever known. Our country understands that tenderness and cruelty sometimes come hand in hand, says Del Toro, recently an Oscar winner for his fascist-inflected animated Pinocchio. That is very much part of Arturo's own identity as a storyteller. People unfamiliar with his films are going to be surprised by their sophistication and precise tone. Ripstein recognized Del Toro's talent early on and would read his screenplays and watch early cuts of his projects. He was one of the mentors I was lucky enough to have as a young filmmaker, Del Toro says, offering Ripstein as an example of a bridge between multiple generations of Mexican up-and-comers. Gonzalez Inarito agrees, describing Ripstein as a beacon. His voice and vision of Mexicanness is persistent, unique, and unmistakable, says the Birdman and Bardo director. Quaron, too, is convinced. He's fundamental in the history of Mexican cinema, he says, a master and a role model for all of us who came after. We owe him so much. While his movies are decidedly not paragons of virtue, Occasionally, they've spurred a social change at home. Ripsy's The Place Without Limits, an adaptation of the controversial novel by Chilean author Jose Donoso, tacitly challenged ingrained Mexican notions of machismo in its portrayal of a gender-fluid sex worker, La Manuela Roberto Cobo. 
the trailblazing film featured the first gay kiss in the history of Mexican cinema. It is the first film where homosexuality in Mexico was treated seriously and rigorously, Ripstein says of his own film, not boastfully, but with an earnest appreciation for its relevance. The first pride parade in Mexico was called Mexico Place Without Limits. To this day, the film continues to have an impact on the LGBT community, and I'm very pleased. Another of his movies, 1974's The Holy Inquisition, remains groundbreaking as a chronicle of Mexican anti-Semitism during the Spanish Inquisition. Ripstein is Jewish. Far from resting on his triumphs, Ripstein has remained active in the new millennium. His latest bleak delight, 2019's Devil Between the Legs, which explores an elderly couple's warped sexuality, premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. He has achieved a great longevity despite the obstacles that it entails to make, fil to make films in Mexico, Quarren said. He underwent the cruelest eras for film production in the country, but persevered. Ripstein's provocations are still plenty shocking today. A notable festival that he won't name rejected Devil Finding, rejected devil finding it off-putting. They said it was very disturbing, Ripstein says, mockingly shifting to English for the verdict, facing an increasingly challenging economic landscape and the scorn of the morally righteous, he's unsure of what's next. I have no idea if this is, if this is the last movie I'm going to make, Ripstein says. I'm not planning to retire. I plan to find something that motivates me enough to fight like crazy to make it. The closest he came to his boyhood Hollywood dreams was when he directed 1976's Foxtrot, an English-language drama shot in Mexico starring Peter O'Toole and Max von Sydow. That terrible experience, as he calls it, nearly prompted him to quit filmmaking for good. Fortunately, a raging confidence kept him from cap capitulating. Now settled into his hard-earned and sharp-edged wisdom, Ripstein feels more audacious than ever. That was Sordid Yet Sublime by Carlos Aguilar from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, September 13, 2023. Okay, here's this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, September 22, 2023. Making L.A. Ballet a Force in Dance World. New artistic director Melissa Barak sets a mix of fresh voices and favorite classics by Stephen Vargas. Ballet in Los Angeles has been scarce in the past years. Companies often lack dedicated studio space, and the limited companies that do exist are spread across Southern California, leasing out spaces here and there while struggling to find a centralized hub to call home. Lovers of the art form have taken a patchwork approach to finding new works from up-and-coming voices, often resorting to visiting companies from other cities, like New York City and Chicago. But with the recent openings of L.A. Dance Project, American Temporary Ballet and Body Traffic, alongside educational institutions such as USC Gloria Coffin School of Dance, a new era of dance is blossoming in L.A. and Los Angeles Ballet, which launched its first season in 2006, is ushering in a new chapter. Led by recent appointment artistic director Melissa Barak, the company is presenting a season stacked with promising new work. L.A. Ballet's 2023-24 season marks Barak's first fully programmed year after she was named artistic director in August 2022. Her inaugural season injects the company's programming with a fresh perspective 
and introduces a rebrand for the institution. The season, which kicks off November 13, includes Next Steps, an evening performance with a variety of work, including choreography by Justin Peck, a U.S. premiere by Hans van Manen, and a world premiere by Barak in collaboration with a film and TV composer Chris Bowers, King Richard and Bridgerton, and a double bill of Yuri Posakov's Firebird and George Valentine's Serenade next summer. The ballet tradition of the Nutcracker and the Nutcracker Tea continues for the company with performances starring, starting in December. LAB will also be featured in the 2024 Laguna Dance Festival. LAB was founded in 2004 by former artistic directors Tordal Christensen and Colleen Neary. Barak, the first solo artistic director of the company, offers a distinct perspective as a former dancer of LAB and as an LA native. Her goal is to make LA a force in the dance world. I want, to, I want people to see that LAB is on the road to establishing itself not only as LA's major dance company, but also becoming one of the country's leading dance companies, Barak said. While other art forms in LA have often physical spaces to call home, dance is still laying its foundations in the city. Initiatives such as the LA Dance Project began in 2012, yet the company didn't open its own theater space until 2017. Before then, it had been performing across the world without a central space to present work in the city. As part of her vision, Barak is expanding the venues at which the company will perform. Looking to expand the company's reach across the city, LAB will perform at Pasadena Civic Center, and in addition to the company's roster starting the season, the Broad Stage in Santa Monica, Royce Hall in UCLA, Redondo Beach Performing Arts Center, and Dolby Theater in Hollywood. Barak grew up in L.A., where she studied at Westside School of Ballet, the city's oldest public ballet school. There, she found inspiration in Yvonne Mouncy, the founder of the school, who was one of Balanchine's original ballerinas at the New York City Ballet. For Barak, it then became New York City Ballet, or BUST. Barak went on to study at the School of American Ballet in New York for two years before being invited to join the company. She experienced a huge period of growth as a dancer and also as a person during her time there. After about nine years at the company, she ached for a change. Simultaneously, LAB was looking to grow. Mouncy, who was an artistic advisor in the company's creation, informed Barak of LAB's inception. Barak returned home to join the then-new company in LA as a dancer in its first season in 2006. Looking back, Barra saw the decision to join LAB then as the right choice. If she had stayed at NYCB, she says the types of roles she was pursuing would have been out of reach. Following five years as a dancer at LAB, Barak launched her own company in 2013. I started Barak Ballet because I felt like there was a world where I could help create a culture, an aesthetic, and a sense of entertainment of what ballet could be, she said. The company became successful, performing at the Joyce Theater in New York and Jacob's Pillow in Massachusetts and collaborating with the L.A. Film. Building the company from the ground up was grueling for Barak, who wore many hats, including director of development, social media manager, scheduling, and more. However, 
The work laid the foundation of skills that would prove beneficial in her new role as artistic director of LAB. It taught me every aspect of running a company, she said. It also gave me confidence, frankly. I saw how the dancers responded to the way that I worked with them and the way that I led rehearsal or a class. Barack Ballet was on the heels of its 10th anniversary before she joined LAB. Initially on hold, as Barack adjusted to LAB, Barack Ballet is now set to end its run. The pandemic marked a time for LAB to pause and reflect on the company's trajectory. Board Chair Jennifer Bella McGuire previously told the Times that the board decided to do a 360-degree review to re-envision the institution's goals and ambitions. There was a lot of change in the dance world in general during COVID, Barack said. LAB was part of that change. The work that I, that I did through Barack Ballet was recognized and seen as something that might be a good, good direction to go. At the end of the 22-23 LAB season, Barak premiered Memory House. As the first full-length evening work by Barak as the company's artistic director, the abstract ballet centered on vignettes honored by honoring those who died during the Holocaust. Initially slated for a 2020 premiere, it became a last-minute addition to the recent season that went up alongside the company's other big production, Lady of the Camellias. Barak also marked the company's new era with a complete rebrand, including a new logo and online presence designed by creative director Tyler King. In order to really have distinctive ownership over the artistic vision of the company, it would have to reflect that in all aspects, in particular, its face, said Julia Rivera, director of audience development. In Rivera's estimation, Barak has established a collaborative environment for the company, asking thorough questions of all team members in an effort to understand what needs to happen to make the company run. Uh, that's not common. I think that that is her nature and is a comfortable place for her to, uh, to be with her staff, Rivera said. It allows for a much deeper involvement and intellectual and emotional involvement with staff. The 23-24 season is the first step in LAB's transformative, transformation to become a leading voice in the ballet for the city already bringing in popular artists like Beck and Van Manen. As Barak pushes the boundaries of the ballet company, she hopes to make a mark that also welcomes new audiences into the fold. Over the next few seasons, people are going to really see that strong sense of a more established company and a company that Angelinos can call their own and feel a sense of pride and ownership, said Barak. That was Making It LA Ballet, A Force in Dance World by Stephen Vargas, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, September 22nd, 2023. And on to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, September 21st, 2023. The Inside Story. At 95, architect Louis Nador reflects on his career and capital records by Pamela Chellin. Architect Louis Nador had a disastrous 80th birthday cake in 2008. Nadar, who designed the Capitol Records building in Hollywood, was presented with a celebration cake that had been custom-baked in the shape of his iconic cylindrical building. But the pastry stood reflected the rather substantial difference between concrete and flour. When the cake was brought out, it gently collapsed and everyone applauded, Nadar says, laughing over the phone from his home in Santa Rosa. It was like in one of the movies where the Capitol, Capitol Records building was destroyed. Thankfully, the cake for his 95th birthday 
which he celebrated last month, was more structurally sound. Designated a historic cultural monument in 2006, the building has long been a favorite of Los Angeles landmark to demolish or film on film, especially for filmmaker Roland Emmerich, who blew it up in, with an alien spaceship in Independence Day and slammed it with twisters in the day after tomorrow. Yet no movie can ever write the building out of a central place in, the, in popular music history. The tower is synonymous with the illustrious Capitol Records, home of Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra, and the American record label of Pink Floyd and the Beatles, with the latter stars lining the Hollywood Walk of Fame right in front of the building. Over the last several years, the building has been illuminated in support of various so sociopolitical causes. In 2020, it was lighted red to support independent music venues. Last year, during their performance in Hollywood, Duran Duran lighted the Capitol uh, Records building blue uh, and yellow in solidarity with Ukraine. I think that's excellent, Nadarf says. Anything that vigorously engages the public on the right side of good causes transcends other issues. I'm flattered they use the Capitol Records building. It means it has enough cachet to merit being chosen to do that. Like the famous landmark he designed, Louis Nadart, Nadart as of late, has been experiencing his own brush with stardom, with postcards from autograph seekers arriving at his door. He is flattered but doesn't take the attention too seriously. It's obvious that if someone asks me for four signatures, I'm part of trading baseball cards or something, he says, they are going to trade four Lou Nadarfs for one Joe Smith. Still, he's surprised and somewhat baffled by the sudden burst of recognition after all these years. I guess my name ended up on a list or something, he shrugs. A native was just 24 years old when he designed the Capitol Records building in 1953. It was the world's first circular office building. Though it was, it was 70 years ago, he vividly recalls how he felt when he received the assignment for his first solo project. At one level, I felt enormous anxiety that if I didn't get a solution very, very quickly, something terrible would happen, he says. On the other hand, I felt a total confidence that I could do it. So it was a crazy contradiction. Native notes the building's porcelain enamel sunshades with carefully spaced gaps to play with light and shadow. These cause spiritual lines to appear on the building, drawing the eye into the rhythm rather than straight up and down. You can see Capitol Records from quite a distance and you get a first impression of its basic form and character. You have a reading of it as complete, he says, but the building is designed so that the closer you get to the building, you discover more details. What about this, the long-standing myth that its round shape was designed to look like a stack of records with a rooftop antenna resembling a phonograph needle. As hard as it might be to believe, the legendary story above the building is just a coincidence, an urban le legend Nadab has tried to debunk for decades. In fact, when his boss, Welton Beckett, tasked him with the assignment, the building was simply referred to as Project X. Shrouded in secrecy, Nadef was given little guidance for the project other than being asked to design a 13-story building on a slope-sided slope -sided street in, ho in Hollywood that has to be kept as cool as possible and it's smaller than usual for, uh, floor space. He also didn't know for whom he was designing it. Nadef says it was common for clients' identities to be kept confidential during the initial planning stages. Nadef relished the 
relative latitude, the creative latitude. The absence of information left him unburdened by preconceived ideas. I knew the door was open for someone, something special. It urged me so strongly, he said. I felt, and I think all architects feel this way, there's a drive to be tra to translate the mundane, bare requirements that clients come in, in with into something that has some poetic qualities about it. Nader had an epiphany. The project's requirements were eerily resonant with a series of circular buildings he had designed for his master's thesis in college. The round shape is a very efficient uh, enclosure of space, he says. You get more bang for your buck. Not everyone agreed with this approach. Nadav says that Capitol Records co-founder and President Glenn Wallach became irate when Nadar presented him with a model and drawings of a round building and violently rejected the design. He thought it was a cheap stunt designed by a young guy to make the building look like a stack of records, Nadarf says, laughing. Wallach insisted that Nadarf replace the round design with plans for a rectangular building. But when both rectangular circular designs were presented to the insurance company financing the land, Nadarf says Wallach was urged to proceed with the round design. Soon after, when talk of the building housing a radio station that never came to fruition was raised, Nadar fretted when he was asked to design an antenna. He was worried that it would look like a, a phonograph needle and cement the idea that the building was designed to look like a stack of records. Owing to his nagging concern, Nadar positioned the spire asymmetrically, poised as if it touches a roof, the roof delicately, like a ballerina in point. He calls the buildings a great. He calls he calls it the building's grace note. Still, the stack of vinyl myth persists. Despite his good humor, it leaves him conflicted. The building was not designed as a cartoon or a giggle. To have it trivialized with the stack of records myth is annoying and dismaying. He says, "There's not a thing on the building that doesn't have a solid purpose to it." Nunarf's ingenuity is especially impressive to L.A.-based architect Lorcan O'Hurley, who said he has often responded strongly to the fact and admired that here was this interesting architect who was combining science and art or artistry and technology. Walton Beckett and Associates, very much to their credit, were at a period where modernism was at its heyday and they had to come up with ideas that were new and fresh, and they did it. And Lou was certainly instrumental in that. His work is extraordinary. Nadav was born in Los Angeles in 1928. His father owned a shop where he made and sold women's clothing and Nadav's mother lining the garments. However, the business often collapsed, forcing his parents to work at a garment factory until they could reopen the store. His family struggled financially as they moved around, mostly in Silver Lake and Los Feliz. With only enough money to rent studio apartments, his parents slept on a Murphy bed while Nadar spent his nights on a mattress on the floor. As a little boy, Nadar felt drawn to buildings. When his third grade teacher decorated the classroom with the Hawaiian vacation theme, his fascination morphed into a calling. I asked my teacher who made the drawings, and she said, Naval Architects. And then I asked her who draws the plans for houses, and she said, Architects. She told me to ask my mother to show me the floor plans that were published in the real estate section of the Sunday newspaper. When I saw them, I was a goner, he swoons. I now knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an architect. Nadav remembers at age eight 
designing a three-bedroom house using a card table as a makeshift drafting table. Soon after, he began designing small towns. It wasn't anything brilliant, but I was learning to draw, learning to scale, and learning to think in spatial terms, he said. When he was 12, Nadarf got a part-time job at a, at a bookstore where he spent his first two paychecks on architecture books. He also amassed a collection of architectural materials, T-square, rectangles, instruments for ink drawings, thanks to his bar mitzvah presence, and decided he was ready to go to work. Sanford Kent, a young architect who had just graduated from USC, hired a tenacious 13-year-old Nadarf, paying him out of his own pocket. The abstract problems Kent gave him stimulated his mind and were instrumental in forming his ethos. It got me thinking about architecture in terms of its effect on human emotions. The key issue is, how do people respond to your work, whether from a distance or by living it, Nadarf says. He attended UC Berkeley, not only to leave home and expand his horizons, but also because of its affordability. Even still, Nadarf couldn't afford all of the required materials. He borrowed airbrushes from his fellow students who would give him their pencil stubs. Nadarf submitted his assignments on Pebbleboard, which was not only cheaper than, il than illustration board, but allowed him to draw on one side, flip it over, and draw on the other. In 1950, Nadarf graduated at the top of his class and got his master's, master's of Architecture degree a year early. He skipped his graduation ceremony because he had a job interview at Welton Beckett and Associates where he was promptly hired. Three years into his employment, he began working on the Capitol Records building. Nadav says he would design it the same way if he were given the assignment today. Andrew Slater, former Capitol Records president and chief executive 2001 to 2007, attests to the building's distinctive charm. When you go to work every day in that building, it's like you're going into a piece of art and it informs your attitude to do something with that mindset, which is great, he says. Even though working in the music industry is, in a sense, an industrial endeavor, you never felt like you were doing anything industrial when you walked into that building. Still, Nader fears being perceived as a Johnny OneNote, as he put it. Noting the plaque bearing his name outside the building's main entrance, he expresses gratitude but wariness that this one modest project has to carry my whole reputation. It's a fair point, given the magnitude of Nadarf's notable au revoir. It's earned him seven regional honor and merit awards and AIA California's Lifetime Achievement Award, 2009. His work also has been featured at the J. Paul Getty Museum. I know Capitol Records is always the first one people talk about, and it's a splendid, iconic building that fuses artistry and functionalism. But he's also produced other projects over the years, says fellow architect O'Harely. The Santa Monica Civic Auditorium is brilliant. Nadorf designed the 3,000-seat capacity Santa Monica Civic Auditorium on the heels of the Capitol Records building in the late 1950s. Essentially two buildings in one, it was a challenge to design. A locale that functioned at one as a performance space with a sloped floor and an exhibit hall with a flat floor for sports events, banquets, and trade shows. Nadav transformed the floor from flat to tilted using a uh, using a floor from uh, using a hydraulic system that was hailed for its innovation. I don't think you'll find any place that has a symphony on a Friday night 
and a gem show or some kind of hobby show on Saturday, he says. Formerly home to the Santa Monica Symphony Orchestra, but now sitting vacant, the Civic Auditorium opened its doors in 1958. From 1961 to 68, it hosted the Academy Awards. It was the site of live recordings, including George Carlin's comedy record, Class Clown, and the Eagles' Eagles Live. It also hosted the TAMI show in 1964. While the Civic was still under construction, Native designed a 15,000-seat capacity Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena, the biggest arena in Los Angeles when it opened in 1959. It was demolished in 2016 for the Bank of California Stadium, now called BMO Stadium. Native says the sports arena, home to various Los Angeles sports teams, including the NBA's Lakers, 1960-67, and the Clippers, 1984-89, and the NHL's Kings, 1967-68, was built to attract sports teams to Los Angeles. But uncertainty about whether they'd catch on meant the facility had to be viable for other purposes. In 1960, a year after it opened its doors, the sports arena hosted the first Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles, where John F. Kennedy became the presidential nominee. Muhammad Ali, then known as Cassius Clay, won a boxing match there in 1962. It also hosted rallies by Martin Luther King Jr. and the Dalai Lama and saw concerts by legendary rock acts including The Grateful Dead. Bruce Springsteen played the venue's final concerts, a three-night stint during which he dedicated his song Wrecking Ball to the building lovingly nicknamed The Dump That Jumps. Well, it was pretty dumpy by the end, Nadorf says, laughing. I'd rather it was demolished and some useful purpose made of the site than having it sit there old, shabby, and neglected as it was. Nadorf's credits also include the Beverly Hilton Hotel, the Beverly Center, and the Reagan State Office Building downtown. He details these and his other high-profile projects in his 2018 book, More Humane, an Architectural Memoir. Flipping through its pages, one learns that Nadav not only took risks in designing his projects, but risked his job. He writes in his memoir in 19, that in 1958, when he, was design, when he was designing the Humble Oil, now Exxon headquarters in Houston, he refused to design separate locker rooms and drinking fountains for black and white people, as the company asked him to do. When he went home that Friday night, he describes not knowing if he'd have a job on Monday. Not only did Nadav not lose his job, he says, but the company ceased segregating its locker rooms and drinking fountains. I realize architects have access to some of the most powerful people in the world, and it is our job to bring up issues that represent social issues rather than just architectural design, he says. Nadav also understood that sometimes he was designing projects where people don't want to be, like the Naval Medical Center in San Diego, which opened in 1988. Instead of one medical building, which he felt would see, seem ominous, he designed several structures and a series of outdoor walkways to make the facility feel warm and comforting. The treatment and diagnostic part of the facility was bold with an abundance of steel and glass. Walkways were lined with floor-to-ceiling glass to allow patients to see the outdoor courtyard, grass, trees, sky, and distant views of a golf course based on the primitive feeling you have in the hospital, which is to get out of the damn place, he says. When he was shopping a few months ago, Nadarv met 
a woman who mentioned she had been in the Navy, uh, forcing her to move around a lot when her son was battling childhood leukemia. Without knowing she was talking to the Naval Medical Center's designer, she told Nadab that it was the only hospital that didn't scare her ill six-year-old son, who has since made a full recovery. What kind of an architect, Nadab says, overcome with emotion and his voice breaking, do you have to be not to hold that as better than any design award? Though Nadab has risen through Welton Beckett and Associates ranks to become a vice president, he grew unhappy after the firm's merger with LRB Associates. It was renamed LRB Beckett. He moved into academia in 1990, spending one day a week at the firm. Nadab became dean of the School of Architecture and Design at Woodbury University, earning distinctions including teacher, faculty member, and administrator of the year. He was also a guest professor at UCLA, USC, Cal Poly Pomona, and Sci Arc. After at his retirement ceremony in 2000, he was awarded an honorary doctorate, marking the end not only of his academic career, but also his time in Los Angeles. Charmed by the beauty of Northern California, Nadov moved up the coast to Santa Rosa. For the next 15 years, he continued working with Woodbury University as campus architect, designing and remodeling some of its buildings and was invited to be a board member. When he parted ways with Woodbury at 87 years old, it was not with the goal of taking it easy. Nadav had other pursuits in mind, including his work with City Vision Santa Rosa revitalizing the city's downtown area. He helped his close friend, Mike Harkins, who edited Nadav's memoir, designed his new house free of charge after the 2017 Tubbs fire burned Harkins' home for, uh, to the ground and he and his wife lost 99% of their belongings. Lou offered without solicitation, I'd like to design your house, Harkins says. To me or anyone else who knows him, it was a heartfelt offer that of course he would make and yet so much more. One analogy might be if Eric Clapton said, I'd like to play at your wedding. The knowledge and sensibility that comes along with a Nadarf design offering is huge, just like his heart. Most recently, Nadarf has been experimenting with plans for a project to help people who are unhoused. Nadarf has made the most of his architectural license over the last 71 years. His voice fills with pride when he reveals that he holds the earliest issued active architecture license in the state of California, obtained in 1952. It's something I wanted to be since I was a little kid. My architectural license was so hard to come by. I don't want to give it up, he says with palpable emotion. I don't want to be retired. I want to be an architect until I fall over. I plan to be buried as a licensed architect. That was the inside story by Pamela Chellin from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, September 21st, 2023. So let's conclude with some ads from the Jewish Journal for September 15th through the 21st, 2023. And we start off with this one. What should young people do with their lives today? Many things, obviously. But the most daring thing is to create stable communities in which the terrible disease of loneliness can be cured. Kurt Vonnegut. Happy 5784 from your friends at the award-winning Jewish Journal. And we go on to this one. American Friends of Beit Essie Shapiro, Changing the Lives of People with Disabilities. Faces, Sunday, October 15th, 2023, 5 p.m. at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. 
led kosher formal dinner by Pat's Catering, honoring the pillars of the Beit Issy Shapira West Coast community. Arrow fine to Yuri Blackman passing the torch, Natalie and Michael Zarabi to Jeffrey, to Jeffrey Zarabi continuing the legacy, cycles for Smile and Izzy Mitzvah participants, leaders of tomorrow. For more details and sponsorship opportunities, go to afobis.org slash LAGALA23. Contact Soraya at afobis.org. Phone is 213-340-7656 or scan the code. Faith S.E. Shapiro is the pioneering leader in the field of disabilities with a positive impact on 500,000 plus people in Israel and around the world annually. That'll do it for today, folks. Happy Yom Kippur and peace.